Welcome back to No One Understands. My name is Colleen McGrath. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and I'm your host. On our fifth episode, we're going to talk about a subject that's incredibly important to us, mental health. Today, I'm going to be joined by Amanda and Robbie Tesmond, who will share their experiences with mental health during Robbie's cancer treatment and what it looks like today. I will also be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Karst. He is our expert on today's episode, and he is a pediatric psychologist at Children's Wisconsin. I would like to welcome our first guest today, Amanda Tesmond. Amanda Tesmond, um, we have you here on our fifth episode of No One Understands. As you know, the fifth episode is about mental health. So we are thrilled that we got the opportunity to chat with you and um, your son, Robbie. And we really want to put a voice to other families that are going through pediatric cancer diagnosis, survivorship, everything, and experience and resources that hopefully a family that's felt really alone can feel a little bit more understood. So um, that being said, Amanda, would you um, introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your life? So my name is Amanda Tesmond. I am married to my husband, Rob. We have uh, the privilege of being parents to three children, Hannah, who is 22, Julia, who is 19, and Robbie, who is will be 15 next week. So I know, obviously, Robbie is a cancer survivor. Can you tell me a little bit about what that cancer diagnosis was like? Yeah, our story's a little different in that we were very isolated. We had just moved out to California. Two weeks after we moved out there, we were evacuated by a wildfire. The day we returned, Robbie um, peed blood and took him to local, local ER, which... If anyone knows, small town, um, they thought it was a UTI, and they sent us home. And mama's gut kicked in. We didn't even have a primary care physician at this point. I mean, we had no family out there. We had nobody. And I took them to the first doctor that I saw in the Yellow Pages, and they said they were going to admit him for high blood pressure. My mind at that time was still sort of in crisis mode because of the wildfire that just had happened. And it was such a culture shock being from Illinois i never seen that before. So in my mind, I think I was just sort of like, okay, so high blood pressure. Okay, that's probably not great, but let's see what happens. Like, yeah. I, So he was admitted, and they ran some tests. I actually thought we were going to go home because he had started eating. His blood pressure looked like it went down a little bit, and it seemed okay. And then um, my husband came up with my two daughters, and... Um, The doctor said they wanted to come in and talk to us. And I remember very clearly I looked out the window and Hannah and Julia and Robbie were in the playroom across the hall. And the doctor said, um, you know, we're concerned about a mask that we saw on on his ultrasound. They did an ultrasound. And my mom actually had just had uh, a brain tumor. So she was able to not have any treatment and they just took it out. So I thought, oh, you could just take it out then. And that's how I acted. Like I acted like there was nothing going on. I was like, <laughs> so you could just like take it out like tonsils, like just like let's just. And she's like looking at the doctor kind of like what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> like we're, she's not hearing us. She said, well, we're going to have to transfer him by ambulance to the nearest children's hospital, which was another two hours away. I was just like, what is going on? 
And I kind of turned into like a child myself. Like I wanted to talk to my dad. I wanted like everything to be okay. And I looked, I remember looking at Robbie and just having this feeling like life is never going to be the same. And just feeling like, how do we tell him? He's three and a half. How do you tell him what's going to happen? I said, the doctor has to look at it at another hospital, take some more pictures. And Robbie was like looking around and I could still see his little blue eyes and long eyelashes. And um, I looked at him and I said, Robbie, you're going to go with mommy. We're going to get to ride in the ambulance, try to make it sound fun, yeah. right? Like we get to ride in the ambulance and we're going to go together. I'm not going to leave you. And... Um, I said, there's something, uh, you know, in your tummy, it's kind of making you sick, right? Like your tummy, because he was saying his tummy hurt. He was just looked at me and he had like that pouty lip. Said, okay. And a little scared, a little sad. So confused. Yeah. Um, We were in the ambulance ride and it was two hours. It was so long. I didn't know what was going on. We got to the hospital and the oncologist, which I barely even knew what an oncologist was, comes in and looks at Robbie, puts his hand on his tummy and looks at me and says, oh, his tumor's right there. And I was like, what? What do you mean? I was just like, I'm his mom. Mm -hmm. I hold him all the time. He has a tumor. So my first feelings, I think, were denial. I was going through blame of like, I am his mom. That is my job to keep my child alive. And I don't know what's going to happen. I remember the next day they were going to have to do a a biopsy and stuff. I had this really weird vision of like a wedding day and like dancing with him. And I remember thinking like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to dance with him at his wedding. And that was like, then it like really hit me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's going to kindergarten. I don't know if he's going to eighth grade. I don't know if he's going to high school. I don't know. I, it's Isn't it, it? It's so interesting to me, especially when I talk to you about, like, big life things, is the things we, like, go to or hold on to. Because <laughs> I remember, like, when we knew my dad was really sick. And I was like, same thing. Like, who's going to walk me down the aisle when I get married? <laughs> and I was so hyper-focused on that, like, detail. I, I think... A feeling that just kept being repeated to myself and the thought that kept being repeated. We were all alone. We just had nobody. Yeah. And I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. Right. We have nobody. When you think about, like, your own emotions, when going through treatment, going through, you know, getting to the end of treatment and procedures, do you remember any emotions you felt a lot? Yeah. So Robbie had the quote, good cancer, right? Like, I understand there are really terrible ones. I'm not, I don't want to negate that. I, I acknowledge that. All cancer is bad. At the t- right. At the time, everyone was always like, treatment is only this long and he only has to have this done. So I often felt like I couldn't really complain. I felt like I didn't have that permission or space to feel what I was feeling at the time. Sure. I just had to be grateful about yeah. everything. And I didn't ha- I didn't get to say this really sucks. So my point was in that is that like Robbie had really bad neuropathy. And I remember halfway through his foot would drag and he would cry. Like not just like whimper, like blood curdling scream. Like I can hear them when he would go to the bathroom just screaming. Mm-hmm. And I said, this isn't normal, right? And at the time I felt like they were just well, yeah, sometimes this happens. But I'm like, but what, what are we going to do about it? 
Like, we just watch it. it. It was just like this feeling of, well, what am I supposed to do? And I just felt like everyone was assuming that I knew what to do and I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I remember we had an appointment with the doctor and I said, look, he really looks like he's struggling. Like he started to crawl, actually. And he said, well, you're pushing him in the stroller. And I said, but he he's crying when he's walking. Like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. He's like, you need to make him walk. And I just said, how do you make him walk? Like, he had lost all this weight. They were about to give him, like, a feeding tube because he was so skinny. And they were telling me, make him walk. And now I think there's a lot of um, early intervention. There's OT, PT. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to ask for that. Nobody offered that. I didn't know. I didn't know. As he was coming out of the cancer, when I saw him with his peers, I noticed that, you know, he definitely wasn't as fast. He definitely was tired a lot faster. Mm-hmm. His legs would hurt a lot. And he still suffers from that today. He has his neuropathy. That's something that's stayed with him. Yeah. And they held the last couple of doses because he had stopped walking, actually, because it was so bad. But again, it was the good cancer, right? Right. And this, and what they said is like, oh, this usually happens with kids who have leukemia. Um, they, they, it usually doesn't affect the spot, their bodies like this. And I just felt like, okay, so I don't say anything again. So it's like you're given the gift that you're going to survive. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be able to minimize and suppress all the pain. Mm-hmm. You're being branded, right? You're being branded as a survivor, so you can survive through anything. You need that space and that peace to say, this sucks. I'm having a bad day. Your kid needs that. Your your girls need that. Yes, you need the motivation to, like, keep going through things, but, like, you also need the space to have a bad day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. always felt like I was protecting him, like I— didn't want him to ever see me upset or ever see me weak. He had like the scan before they say we can stop treatment, right? Like I don't even remember what month that was. Um, they had said like, so he's got a blood clot in the main vein going to his heart. They call it the IVC. They mentioned it like a few months before and they said, oh, it should go away in time. And it was still there. And then when treatment ended, they said it was still there. And then I mistakenly Googled it. <laughs> and We've all been there. Um, so when I, I asked the oncologist, I'm like, so if I'm reading this correctly, if this breaks off, he can just die in minutes and there's nothing we can do about it. And um, he just shook his head. And I said, so why aren't we? Do-? It was another thing that I right. was like, why aren't we doing anything about right. this? And they're like, it's in a really bad place, blah, blah, blah. How would I know? Right. right? I trusted the You're doctors. Not a doctor. Right. <laughs> and he still has the blood clot to this day. Wow. Yeah. So they 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 have to monitor it. Um and they the idea is the body's gonna absorb it. So hope I don't know. Yeah. Your kid going through cancer is super traumatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, did you feel like at the time you were given any resources of like how you could better take care of yourself and process things and have support? No. Do you feel like Things like that were offered to Robbie. So there the was girls. a child life specialist, sure. and she like she did the whole thing where they explained how the port worked mm-hmm. um, with the bear and the story. We did have an amazing patient social worker who okay. was really actually she's the one who inspired me to become a social worker. That's why That's I'm a social amazing. worker now. Yes, she was amazing, and her name was Michelle. And um, shout out to Michelle. Yes. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. So what's actually even funnier about that is that I'm a child welfare worker now 
and she is now a child welfare worker. So she switched from hospital to child welfare worker. And so I got to call and thank her. I did that, I think, last year. I said, I just want to let you know that this is what I'm doing, and it's because of my experience with you. So you don't necessarily think, like, things specifically to, like, assist mental health with you and your family? Nothing, nothing. And, I mean, that's, what, 10 years ago now, 10 issues? So we're hitting, it will be 11 years um, on St. Patrick's Day. I think things have hopefully changed a lot over a little over a decade, right, where families are feeling like there are more resources Mm -hmm. around them so they can process the trauma they're going through. Mm -hmm. When you guys look at your life post-treatment, did you anticipate, like, wanting resources like that or feeling a need for resources? And that could be for you or for Robbie or your girls or... You know, I could never anticipate life being this hard after treatment. It's really been one thing after another. He had the good cancer and he has neuropathy, cardiomyopathy, stage 2 kidney disease, a blood clot, reoccurring polyps in his colon. Um, Some have been anionomas. These aren't normal things for somebody to have. He shouldn't have a pill pack Mm -hmm. like an old person, right? right? Like that's not normal. And depending on who we're around, it's just that need to like, well, no, this is a success story, remember? Like, you're supposed to be happy, remember? Like, I know he's got this heart condition. I know he might develop colon cancer one day, but he's here. He Remember when he beat cancer? Like, the first time, it's good, you know? Or you need to move on from the past. Like, hearing that old-style thinking yeah. of, we don't need to talk about this. And it's like, girl, I don't want to talk about this either. Like, I don't want this to be a part of my life, right? Like, mm-hmm. but, but this is our reality. This is real. After he finished treatment, the blood clot thing really messed with my head. I can't imagine. I, like, just watch for shortness of breath. It's fine. I for sure had PTSD. I mean, it's not uncommon for parents who watch their children to have go through a medical treatment of numerous sorts. Um, and we all have anxiety to mm-hmm. some point. But, like, the way that's communicated, like, oh, you might have anxiety. Like, there's something unstable about you, right? Like, yeah. when they present it, like, oh, it could be this. Like, you're you're just, you're anxious because of, the, then it's like, I'm not credible anymore. Right. And oh, my, that is so well said. It's awful to have your voice taken away. Yeah. Like that. I think it is um, something that happens a lot. Feeling minimized in like a hospital setting mm-hmm. is the worst, right? Mm-hmm. Because you feel like what you're going through isn't validated. It isn't real. It it really, when they didn't find the cancer when he initially peed blood, the doctor, I remember in the ER, I was hysterically sobbing. And I said, I just don't think that this is it. And he said, well, I guess I can get an ambulance and I guess we can transfer you to the next hospital. But that's going to cost you thousands of dollars. You're like, it's my kid's life. I don't care. Well, that logical brain would say that. But then when I was put in my place by a doctor, Mm -hmm. you know everything. Yeah. Right. So I just, okay, I'm overreacting. Right. (laughs) So now I I let my gut lead everything. (laughs) Like my intuition, I have it. It it took me a while to give it credit and to listen and to know the difference between anxiety and intuition. Sure. And the way I got to do that is through therapy. Mm-hmm. So I received, I went to therapy after he went to treatment. 
Um, I received EMDR, so that really deals with, like, PTSD. Um, It's like a rapid eye movement. It basically, like, rewires your brain into what it's thinking, and it's not taking away any memories or anything like that, but it really helps kind of suppress a lot of that trauma, that fight, flight, or freeze, that whole mindset that your your brain is in after a trauma. Mm -hmm. Because I was always on alert, always ready to go, always had a backpack. Always was ready for the next crisis. Mm. Always. Over time, what started to happen was that I got out of the crisis mode. I started to grieve, and this was something that I was shocked about. I grieved. It's going to sound wrong, but I grieved. Cancer life is over, so I'm going to grieve what I was prepared for. I had prepared myself for months what was going to happen, which was I thought he was going to die. So I had to grieve that feeling. That's because not wrong. I, I totally get that. So I packed. I remember we moved again, and I brought out his Rubbermaid, and it was very hard for me. And I thought, we're, you know what? I'm going to put this cancer world. We're all done. He got a cool little model airplane. I'm going to put that away. He got this jacket from this company from my family had thrown a benefit, which was amazing at the time. These different things. This is what he made in the hospital. I had held on to this toy car forever. For some reason, holding on to all of these things, I was thinking I might have to use them again, right? So, like, I needed to have them. They were out. They were displayed. Oh, look, this is what my son got for in cancer treatment. You want to see? Like, this is his room. This is his chemo beads, you know? (laughs) Um, And so I had to pack it all away. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I was wrestling with the fact of having gratitude, Mm. being really angry that it happened, and disappointed that all of these things, all of these long-term effects are still going on. So trying to balance, it just, it. I think life since cancer has felt like whack-a-mole. Yeah. The game, right? And something pops up, you you hit it down. All right, we're good. We're good. Oh, 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 here comes another one, Mm -hmm. right? Robbie yeah. feels like he's a burden. Mm-hmm. He feels very bad that for various reasons, you know, money is a hard time asking for what he wants, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I don't think he's ever asked for what he wanted. I think people gave him stuff. Yeah. Right. Because let's make this all a blessing for everybody. Right. Like right. let's make the worst that let's. Let's let's find the treasure into what's going on. Let's find the good. Let's mm-hmm. find the good, right? I was stuck on that mantra for so long. Yeah. It could always be worse. I said that for probably eight years straight. It could always be worse. And I never, ever allowed that space. Mm-hmm. And Robbie, I think he felt like he had to also carry that. He, has, he had to carry the fact that it could be worse. Yeah. And so by me saying that, he wasn't given the space to say that actually this really fucks. Mm-hmm. So I finally, I think this year, well, when the pandemic happened is when he was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy and then last month, the kidney disease, his mantra, and we talked a little bit about this was um, be strong, right? And I remember I told him, I said, "Guess Robbie, you don't have to be strong. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry that I said that you needed to be strong. And he goes, oh, mom, it's okay. It's okay, right? Like he's, he's like, I know what you meant. I said, sure, but I just want to let you know that I don't ever want you to feel like mm-hmm. that's what you have to do. Yeah. So the healing process of what has happened 
is ongoing. Yeah. We're 11 years and we're still, it still sometimes feels like the elephant in the room. I teach a class um, called The Effects of Trauma on Children. We teach future social workers that you need a therapist because you're going to hear really hard things yes. and you're going to see really hard things. Nobody has ever said when we hurt, got our son's you know, diagnosis, you're going to see really hard things. You're going to hear really hard things. You're going to need a therapist. No one, no one ever said that. And that's something I had to discover on my own. If there's another family out there that's newly diagnosed mm -hmm. in the space of mental health um, and their emotions, what advice would you give them? I think when they're first diagnosed, they're such in crisis mode. But I think I needed somebody, I needed a professional to say, not ask me, tell me, mm. to come in and say like, hey, we're going to talk about this. Sure. We're going to decompress. I'm not going to talk about diagnosis. I'm not going to talk about what's going to happen tomorrow. We're just going to talk about right now what just happened in the other room when the doctor just gave you the protocol. That's what we're going to talk about right now. I think that medical professionals, mental health professionals should pay attention to that and they should implement some kind of mental health professional regardless. Yeah. Just like we get a social worker at the hospital. Social workers are fantastic. They're fa they do a lot of things, but we need somebody who can tackle the mental health piece. You sound like you hope that someday the peds oncology field can get to a place where it's like you have a social worker, you have your child life specialist, you have your oncologist, and you have your mental health professional yep. on your team. 100%. Let's talk to another caregiver or parent out there, right? If, if their gut isn't feeling quite right or what advice do you give them? I've always tried to allow my kids a space. Like, if you don't want to talk to me, talk to somebody or write it down. Mm -hmm. Like, choose what you want to do. And also just keep showing up. You know, yeah. we know the obvious signs of depression and things that like the isolation, the maybe listening to sad music or not wanting to be with their friends or just maybe like really negative self-talk. Pay attention to those. Pay attention to those things. But if you ask them if they're okay and they say yes, you know, and your gut's saying, like, something's probably not, you need to pay attention to it, you know. Yeah. And we're going to do this together. Like, I'm not going to leave. I'm not just going to drop you off at a therapist's office and run away. Like, you get to, I want you to be in charge. And that's something I've really tried to do with Robbie is to tell him that you have so many things in your life that you don't have a choice on, right? Like, I want to dance with you at your wedding, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I would, I want that goal to happen. I want to see him do whatever he wants to do. But I want you to say how you're going to get the help. I tried so hard to be like therapy. Like it's kind of like old timer stigma, right? Like sure. therapy is not for me. I don't need therapy. I'm perfect. Right. I'm a survivor, whatever. I need a therapy. Mm -hmm. I need a therapy 10,000%. The one time my dad made me go, he found a person that also had a dead mom and like thought we'd bond oh, wow. and whatever. <laughs> um, and obviously I can joke about these things now. At right. the time, there wasn't a lot of joking happening. Right. But theoretically, she would have been a good fit. Ideally, yeah. We she didn't would, jive yeah. well. Mm -hmm. And because that one person didn't work, I shoved therapy out the door for like 10 years. It was like not interest to me. I don't need it. It didn't work. I thought seeing one person one time meant it didn't work. And then in college, I tried another one and I was like, maybe there's mm -hmm. a little something there. I think as parents, we take it personally. Mm. My kid's in therapy, so that must mean I really messed him up, right? Like just like I try to blame myself for the cancer. If your child goes to therapy, guess what? It's not about you. You should also be in therapy. <laughs> but your child, their journey is their journey and they – have the right to own that journey and that to be their journey and yeah. you can't make it about you.
And that takes a lot of humility life. The last thing I want to mention about the stigma and everything, just because your child goes to a therapist or you go to, you go to a therapist doesn't mean that they're going to automatically say, like, oh, you need to be on medication. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with medication. Mm-hmm. But I think people say, oh, they're just going to drug me. They're just going to – there's so many different kinds of therapy. I believe medication works, and they're appropriate for a lot of different circumstances. There's also EMDR. There's also a more holistic approach mm-hmm. of therapy. Touch therapy is a thing. They have play therapy. Like, there's so many different kinds of therapy out there. Educate yourself on the kinds yeah. of therapy. When you're in treatment, there's so many different things. There's so many different resources. And I think it's really hard when you have, like, a more rare cancer, like Wilms tumor. It's, like, 6%. You know, like, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, they have, like, big organizations and stuff. And, like, Wilms is not – they don't really have that, right? Mm -hmm. So it can feel very lonely and isolating. My son, (laughs) the first time he went to camp, and I know you remember this – he wanted to stay for two weeks. I only let him go for a week. And he's like, I want to stay for two weeks. I'm like, but you miss me, don't you? And he's like, ah, yeah, mom, I do. <laughs> like, you don't have to say you do. But um, <laughs> camp for him, um, to see a kid, like, putting on the camp once up gear, yeah. the, the the jacket, and, like, he went out and played basketball the other day. I looked at that, and I looked at the symbol on his back. I'm like, man, they got his back. You know, it's, like, such a so, yeah. like, oh. cheesy. But I'm like, they always have his back. Yeah. And he has nobody to have his back, I feel like, in a lot of different places. Like, they can kind of understand, mm-hmm. but they don't totally understand. Yeah. I don't even understand. I'm not, I never had cancer. Right. I don't know. I don't get it. Well, but you're an expert on being a caregiver. Well, that I, – I am very privileged to be a mom. I'm very mm-hmm. – I really. But to watch him be so brave to say, like, I need to talk to somebody. I need help. That's inspiring. Like, most adults can't do that. Thank you so much, Amanda. Our next guest is none other than Robbie Tesman, who we just heard so much about from his mom, Amanda. Robbie, welcome. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your experience with pediatric cancer? Maybe a little bit about when you were diagnosed, how old you were, and anything like that that you'd like to share. Yeah. I was... Three years old when I was diagnosed with nephroblastoma or Wilms tumor, which is kidney cancer. I was diagnosed with stage three. Um, it covered my whole right kidney and went up to the vena cava and stopped right below my heart. I went through 26 rounds of chemo. I had my right kidney m- removed. 26 treatments is a lot. So did that span over a couple years of your life? Do you know how old you are when you finish treatment? It was spanned over seven months. Okay. And I was four years old. When you finished? When I finished. Did you, like, proceed into becoming a cancer survivor at that point? Yes. Okay. Awesome. So your remission, all mm-hmm. that good stuff. So you were little when you were diagnosed. Yes. But do you have, like, any any moments, any memories, any emotions that you recall? Like, what's your youngest memory about, like, a thought or a feeling or an emotion related to, like, your diagnosis or realizing you were a cancer survivor? I would say when my mom told me I had cancer, I was confused. The only thing I knew was I was sick and I was going to get help for it. Do you remember feeling sick? Like, do you have memories of being sick or feeling gross or anything like that? Or Yes, yeah, I do. You yeah. do? And that stuck with you a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. If you think back to that time, like, do you have, like, an initial emotion you feel? I would say hurt and hurt for the little kid that went through it. 
it sounds like you're talking about like you wish you could have protected your younger self a little yeah. bit. Is that hard to sit with like when you think about these things? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Correct me if your experience was different, but I know for a lot of people, um, when we finish up treatment, when we finish up whatever procedures we might have had to have for our pediatric or childhood cancer, sometimes there's like those survivorship appointments and like what's next for you. Do you remember um, if mental health was ever talked about? No, there wasn't. The only thing that was brought up was camp, and that was when I was, I want to say, 10. So it's a big jump from yes. 4 to 10. Yes, it is. And we know Camp One Step can feel a lot like an emotional support, but yeah. it's still not professional mental yeah. health support, right? <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. I think we get mental health support in a lot of ways, but the most important way is professionals, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else sure. is a bonus <laughs> along the <laughs> yes. way, right, when you find people that understand you and all that. So why don't you tell me a little bit, Robbie, about being a teenage cancer survivor and kind of like what that feels like in your environment? Like, does it make you feel unique to your peers? Do you, what does that awareness feel like to you as like a teenage cancer survivor? As of now, I can joke about it with my friends. I can just like, I'll, I'll be like, I had cancer, so you can't say that to me or something like that. Or <laughs> uh, I lost that race because I had cancer, all that, <laughs> all that type of stuff. Um but it used to be where I didn't tell anyone. Um, I wasn't ashamed of it, but I wasn't totally proud of what I have been through because I felt like it had been my fault. And that, really? yes. You felt like having cancer was your fault? Yes, for sure. Do you know, can you tell me more about that? Um, I think the burden that is put on, that was put on me by myself, that like, because I had cancer, my family has gone through all this stuff or has gone through these emotional waves or my sister have, has trauma because of me and all these type of things that just stack and stack and stack. I don't think diagnosing me with it was my fault, but I think that how I handled it was my fault. It sounds a little bit like the impact you observed on your family members that you were feeling a little bit like that was your fault. Yes. If you're comfortable, do you want to tell me a little bit about what your mental health has kind of looked like in more recent years for you? Yeah, I would say the most difficult part is the after effects, the, for me at least, the toll that it takes, the appointments that you have to go to to deal with those, missing out on school, missing out on the social aspect of school. And the most important part to me is the social aspect. And I missed out a a lot on that. My mental health has not been the most positive, but I would say it's getting better and it's getting to the place where it needs to be. But in the past few years, I've struggled with depression and I think everyone struggles with anxiety. Mm -hmm. But I also struggle with PTSD because of cancer. And I go to EMDR now. What's that? Um, It's like trauma-focused therapy. Okay. Um, I see a therapist two times a week, and there's different exercises that we do, like tapping, desensitization, just stuff like that. You sound pretty aware of, like, of dealing with depression, and I don't think I've thought a ton about PTSD from cancer, but mm-hmm. makes perfect sense yeah. to me <laughs> um, because I think we look back at it and it feels like a pretty traumatic experience, mm-hmm. right? Are you comfortable sharing with me a little bit about what, what led you to decide seeing a therapist was a good fit for you or anything um, that you're currently doing? 
Yeah, I deal with flashbacks from cancer, from uh, being in the playroom, from getting a tray of cafeteria food, from getting poked in the chest because of a port. And that's like the point where I knew I had to tell someone that like something was going on because it didn't feel right. And I wish it hadn't got to that point because I feel like if I would have told someone earlier, it would have been so much better and I would have gotten the help that I needed. So I would say like speaking out is the biggest thing that a person can do. And when you get to that point, follow through with it because it's not something that can be rushed and it's not something that can be slowed down either. I think it's really impressive. You fight so hard to live, right? But like you got to enjoy your life. Yeah. You know, so um, and that's a part of it is being able to feel a range of emotions and not just feeling the really tough emotions all the time, right? Yeah. For me, when I think back about cancer and about other people in my life that have been childhood cancer patients and survivors, it feels a lot like <laughs> we have this day where it's like, it's your last chemo, yay, party, like ring a bell, yay, party, it's all over. And it's like this fleeting moment and you're just been like, okay, shoo, go reenter the life before cancer and like just close the book on this chapter of your life. What advice would you give someone else when they're kind of like getting their feet wet again with like going back to school or sports or, you know, when their cancer phase of their life's getting a little smaller? Do you have any thoughts on, you know, what you'd tell in maybe another teenager or another kid that's like it's time for them to like go back to quote unquote normal life? Yeah, I would say... Putting yourself out there and speaking up for yourself and advocating for yourself. If school is a struggle for you, talk to your teachers, talk to the adults around you. You have that support for a reason and you shouldn't feel like you are making a bad impact on their lives because that's a way that I have felt in the past. And I would say for friends, put yourself out there because I know that my first best friend was a person who has spina bifida and... We just kind of connected on that medical level. Yeah. So put yourself out there and don't protect how you react or how you act towards other people. I love that. And you're spot on, right? (laughs) Like going through medical trauma, being a childhood cancer patient, whatever. Yeah, like we go to places like camp and it's awesome when you meet other people that have been in your shoes. But that's a small population at times. And it's so it, it's great if you can find other people that have just maybe understand what a hospital is like a little bit or mm-hmm. what's going to a lot of doctor's appointment is like a little bit. Um, that understanding, I think, goes a long, a long way. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. What's sticking me with, with me right now that, like, I just have to – is, like, to me at camp, like, you were the biggest light in the world. Like, I see you and I smile for you to hear and I'm, like, so happy Robbie's at camp <laughs> and – It brings me so much joy to see you at camp and I always look at you and like you kind of have like your crew friends and all that stuff and it's just like my perception is like this kid's kind of like found his his groove here and he looks like he's having a lot of fun. Look, the older I get, the more I realize there's a lot I could probably pick up on and do for other people to make sure that they're always feeling like they're happy and they're fit. Everyone can't be happy all the time, but you know what I mean? (laughs) But overall that you're feeling good and that you're feeling like your day-to-day life is bringing you joys and things like that. Is there any other advice you think you'd give any kids out there? I think what you said about you can't be happy all the time is really important to know. You don't have to act like you're happy all the time just because you think everyone else is happy because no one is truly happy all the time and 
that's probably one of the biggest things to remember is that it's okay to be sad, mm-hmm. but you need to get back on your up on your feet. And I know it's hard, but reach out, do whatever you can. Um, yeah, it's okay to be sad. <laughs> so true. When you think about working on your mental health and being happier, um, you're supposed to be like really happy. Like you, your your expectation of happy is so happy, mm. right? Like it's it's the make a wish day. Yeah, it's like this was the best day ever, and I want to feel that again. But it's really okay for your goal to be to feel a range of emotions and to like know how to process them, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you have good tools to process your emotions? I do. I would say the biggest tool that I use is tip. And it stands for temperature, intense exercise, paced breathing, and PMR, which is progressive muscle relaxation. But the biggest piece is temperature change. If you can shock your body into, like, like you're really sad or you're really upset and you hold something cold and you're like, oh, my gosh, it's cold. That is the biggest thing for me. Like, that's the thing that I would recommend to anybody. to shock your system. It, like, resets you a <laughs> yeah, little bit. it does. Thanks, buddy. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. We're so glad you were here. (laughs) Next, I am so excited to welcome our expert on today's episode, Dr. Karst. My name is Jeffrey Karst. I am one of the pediatric psychologists here at uh, Children's Wisconsin. And I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I have been working in the MacFund Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders for the past about seven years, uh, alongside a couple of amazing colleagues, and um, really enjoy the work that I do here. Can you tell me a little bit about what led you to your profession and then what led you into specializing? Yeah, I've always been interested in in child psychology. I was one of those people fortunate to sort of always have an idea of what I wanted to do. In addition, family's always been really important to me. And through my early clinical experiences in psychology, I really liked that with child psychology, you were always really working with the whole family. You were talking to parents and siblings and the child, but also sometimes to grandparents and other parts of the family system. And so I really enjoyed that. It really reinforced my desire to work with children and families. And then during graduate school, I had the opportunity to do a rotation uh, here in the MacFund Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. So at that time, it was not something I had ever really considered as a career path more broadly. But I just immediately fell in love with working with the people that we serve here. Both the diversity of the patient population, you kind of get people from all different walks of life that are coming in through the doors here. It's a group that nobody wants to be a part of, but uh, we do see such a wide range of families, but probably most just the incredible courage of the children and families that we work with. It was something that I really found was inspiring on pretty much a daily basis, just watching the things that kids went through here and how resilient and how well they did tend to cope with everything that we put them through during treatment and beyond, as well as just the sort of perspective that it placed on little things or little challenges that arose in my own life. After you watch kids go through chemotherapy and lumbar punctures and port access, it really puts your own kind of challenges in perspective. Uh, And then the chance to work with some really inspiring people here, Uh, the psychosocial team, the medical providers and nurses that I get to work with. It's really an amazing group too. So that really helped reinforce that I wanted to do this uh, long term and it's been a wonderful journey so far. You know, at Camp One Step, we have um, we have so many campers that come from your hospital that just yeah. have the most wonderful things to say about it. 
Yeah, thank you. Tell me a little bit about what training you needed to specialize. So I went to Marquette University for my graduate training. So I was in a clinical psychology doctoral program there. And I was there for about five years, getting my PhD in clinical psychology. After that, I moved to Chicago for a year and did a one-year internship training at Rush University Medical Center. And that was really where my specialization in pediatric psychology more broadly was finalized. So working with kids, both with cancer, uh, but also with a range of different illnesses uh, at Rush. And then my specialty training in hematology and oncology came at Children's Wisconsin with a two-year fellowship after that internship had completed. So I moved back up to Milwaukee and did a two-year fellowship working here under the direction of a couple of supervising psychologists and got additional experience in working with children with cancer and blood disorders. Uh, and then was very fortunate that right near the end of my training, sort of fortuitously, there was a job opening to stay on here. And so uh, that's kind of the journey that I completed. That's really incredible. It sounds like um, that like you were meant to be where you are. It's like, it sounds like it came full circle right back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I feel very fortunate to be here. And it's been, it's just such a rewarding experience working with the people that we do. We know a pediatric cancer diagnosis is terrifying. It's a source of fear, anxiety. What are some resources you would um, speak to for families that are newly diagnosed and um, how can they find them? I think that's such a difficult thing. I think of it as if you were entering a foreign country where everything around you is suddenly different. The language even that people are using can seem very different. And there's so much information. Treatment is starting often very quickly. So it can be such an overwhelming experience. So the first thing that I encourage families to consider is normalizing the distress that happens at that time. It is not a sign of poor coping or bad adjustment to feel completely devastated or overwhelmed or anxious. Those are all really normal reactions. And I think it's important to understand that it doesn't mean that you will always feel that way, but that it is just a really difficult situation you've been placed into. As far as the resources then, I think it's about kind of finding what I would consider sort of layers of support. The first being immediate family and friends. You know, I think for a lot of our families, it can be a very isolating and lonely experience at first. It may not be something that the people around them have ever dealt with or heard about, but reaching out to those people is so important and eliciting support and being willing to reach out for support, even though it can feel like others may not fully understand what you're going through. And then secondly, to work kind of with your treatment team and both to ask about resources from the doctors and nurses and other providers that are seeing you, but also just to talk to them and be honest about what it is you're struggling with. If there's information they presented that you don't understand right away to get more details or get a refresher on things that have been brought up before. I know working with our providers and with our nurses, they're always happy to review things, to provide that support, to talk about the mental and emotional health side of things, because they know it's a huge part of what families are going through. And they know it's a big part of getting through treatment. And then beyond that is working with any sort of psychosocial team that's available within the hospital or clinic setting that, uh, that, you know, that the patient and family are being treated in. And that can look uh, a lot of different ways. It can be a psychologist or a counselor. Uh, it can be a social worker or a child life specialist. We're fortunate here in the MacBun Center to also have a wide range of sort of different psychosocial team providers. We have our creative arts therapy team, so doing music therapy and art therapy. We have a palliative and quality of life specialist who can kind of help focus on living through the cancer journey. We have hospital school teachers who help with the educational piece of everything. 
and beyond. So it's really kind of finding out what are those needs you have, what things are the most kind of pressing at the time, and sort of triaging and, and, and identifying those. And then I would say that last layer is if you need additional support beyond that, that's also normal and, and really important. So if you need to find outside counseling or psychology services, if there's additional layers of support, you know, for a parent that needs to talk to their primary care doctor and talk about medication or talk about finding a counselor for themselves, those things are all really normal and expected. And we really encourage families to think as broad as they can to make sure they have that kind of web of support built around them as they go through treatment. When I think back to my dad when I was sick, um, there was not as much knowledge and presence around having things like therapy and the tools for your mental health. But when I look back at it, my dad was all for anything that would help me. And he was all for researching everything out there. But when it came to himself, that wasn't a priority. And I feel like as we go on with this podcast, I realize 20 years can elapse and it's the same thing. You know, the parents, all their focus is on the kid. And um, we had a social worker on that said something that really stuck with me. And it was kind of like, you have to take care of yourself to be able to take care of your child as well. So I, I, I love that you touched on, um, you know, seeking all the resources that anyone might need, whether that's the child, the caregiver, mom and dad, you know, everyone out there to make sure that everyone's doing the best they can to take care of the patient. Absolutely. No, I think it's such a reflexive action as a parent to focus just on your child in that crisis situation. Mm -hmm. And self-care is really important. And it's something, like you said, that is really necessary in order to be able to be there for your child. And not only care for yourself, but care for your relationships, whether that's a spouse or partner or your other children. Um, but we really do encourage our parents and our families to really try to make that self-care a big component of their plan as well. What signs do you look for in either a child or parent that, you know, indicates they might need additional mental health support? If you notice within your family that somebody is really struggling consistently, you know, I think everybody who's gone through a cancer journey knows there's a lot of ups and downs and there can be some really good days and some really bad days. And again, that's really normal. But if you notice that either the child going through treatment or a parent is really not ever having any of those good days. They really can't get out of that bunk that they're in. That can be a sign of really needing additional support. We also notice if it's really just difficult to kind of take care of those activities of daily living. If you're finding it difficult to eat, you're finding you're not able to sleep. If for the child going through treatment, if even again on days when they're feeling well, they don't want to talk to friends, they don't want to do their schoolwork. Well, maybe kids always don't want to do their schoolwork, but if they really don't want to be around the things that they used to like to do, those are always concerns for us. And those are the things we try to help families navigate is, again, the importance of living and continuing with life throughout the cancer treatment journey. So if you're finding that really difficult, I think that's always a good sign of needing some more support and asking for some extra help. At your hospital, say they're noticing their child might need that additional support. Would they reach out to their oncologist and make a referral? How does that kind of work? It really does vary sort of by where people are being treated and, and what the kind of hospital's um, sort of uh, path is for families. We encourage our families to reach out to their social worker because everybody is assigned a social worker after treatment. 
and really sort of use that as the gateway to other psychosocial services. But certainly they're oncologist, nurse practitioner, APP, uh, nurse. So we want families to always feel like they can ask for our services if they're interested. And in some instances, again, right after diagnosis, families are struggling and it's more that they continue to struggle. And at that point, they realize they need help. We also want people to know it's, there's never sort of an inappropriate time to ask for help. That can be at diagnosis. It can be after you've been on treatment for a year and you thought things were going really smoothly and the dust starts to settle a little bit and suddenly you really notice you're still really struggling. Many of our families actually get through treatment without a lot of psychology support. And then in survivorship, notice a lot of difficulties or distress coming up. And so there's some patients and families that we work with closely for the first time after their cancer treatment journey has ended, um, or after their at least active treatment journey has ended. And we're always happy to be involved at that point too. So we know a lot of kids struggle when treatment, when cancer finishes, you know, we talk a lot about re like ringing the bell and that's your sign that everything's over and you're just supposed to go back to being a kid. Um, re-entering their everyday life prior to their diagnosis can be really hard. Um, I know a lot of the families we've interviewed for this podcast have said their, their child isn't the same person. The kids have said they're not the same person. Um, and often they've matured way beyond their peers. Um, how, how do you prepare a patient to kind of going back to their life post-cancer, what it was like pre-cancer? We actually did a research study a couple of years ago uh, that looked at this exact question, sort of what is it, what are the needs and concerns of families transitioning off of treatment? And we did a lot of interviews with both patients and parents that were going through this process. And the thing that really stood out was what a time of mixed emotions it was. There was a lot of excitement and relief to be ending treatment and families said that at the exact same time, they were also feeling intense anxiety and fear about being done with therapy and moving away from maybe the people that they had been surrounded by, uh, it, you know, from our treatment team over the course of their treatment journey. And very much like you said, also felt like I'm a different person after going through cancer treatment. Whether their treatment was four months or two years, they felt like it had really changed them, not just physically, but children were more mature, they had a different perspective on life, the things that they maybe cared about as a high schooler beforehand were not the same as what they cared about and prioritize after. So it was a really this time of mixed emotions. And we actually kind of following this research study and, and understanding what a time of mixed uh, emotions and distress this was for families, we started a program to specifically target that. The program is called Bridge to Next Steps, and we have the, the patient and the family meet with a nurse practitioner or physician just shortly before they complete treatment. And then very soon after they complete treatment, they meet with a member of our psychology team along with that same medical provider. And it gives them both sort of anticipatory guidance. Here's some things to look for. Here's the distress you might be experiencing. So they sort of know again that that is normal as well as some of the health signs and things that they might want to be sort of monitoring and looking for that way. But talking through that myriad of other issues, here's what school reintegration will be like. If you need extra support in school, here's sort of the mechanisms that you might be able to use. If you're finding yourself struggling and wanting to talk to other cancer survivors, here's the types of resources and support that might be out there. And so we also like to reiterate that we don't disappear when the bell rings, uh, that we're here for the long term and here to support them throughout that survivorship journey as well. That's incredible. That The program sounds absolutely wonderful and like something that would have been very helpful to me. And I'm, I'm so happy for all your uh, patients that get to experience a program like that. 
Can you speak a little bit to the long-term effects on psychosocial health and um, what you you might feel like some cancer survivors commonly experience after life after treatment? Absolutely. Uh, and there really is a range. Just like there's no sort of one way to cope with treatment or no one normal emotional reaction to a cancer diagnosis, survivorship can bring a lot of varied experiences for people. Uh, so some of the things we talk about in that Bridge to Next Steps program, some of the things we discuss are some potential cognitive changes. So kids might experience difficulties with their learning or just differences in their memory or their focus. And so we'll talk about doing testing or providing academic support if that is helpful, if they're noticing any changes that have resulted sort of with their thinking and learning skills after treatment. From an emotional standpoint, just the, again, the range of emotions that they may experience. Uh, whether that's anger or jealousy, frustration, worry about cancer returning. We know those are all very normal things to experience. And so it's important to talk through those things, again, with a therapist or with even within the family, to normalize that just because it's a worry, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But it's also something that we expect you will experience and that we hope will get better over time. And from a behavioral standpoint, even, families will note that for kids, it can be very difficult to get back to the sort of the change in expectations and the sort of return to normalcy. Uh, for some of our younger patients, especially, they may have had a little bit, you know, uh, different treatment during cancer, uh, their cancer treatment experience. Maybe the rules were a little bit more lenient or their diet was a little bit more lenient. And so it can be difficult even to adjust to that part. So we can help work with parents to change know, eating habits or sleeping habits or expectations for toys that may have come up during the treatment journey. And then I, I think you alluded to the social difficulties. That's probably the one that we hear about almost the most is that difficulty sometimes reintegrating socially. Um, the change in perspective and maturity that can happen during treatment. And one of the things that we talk about sort of along with that change is the benefit of seeking out support from other survivors or other people that maybe are familiar with what this journey was like. And that doesn't mean saying goodbye to friends that don't understand your experience or people that you were connected to or close with before treatment, but it certainly can be helpful to sometimes just talk to somebody who understands a little bit about what it was like going through cancer treatment uh, and to sort of have that shared knowledge and experience of how that might change. As I'm sure you can assume, for me, you know, that was camp. I went to Camp One Step, and I it was the first time I'd ever seen a cancer survivor. Um, so that alone was life-changing. It was also the first time that I saw kids who had had cancer that um, looked like what I perceived to be a normal kid again, right? Um, right? So playing volleyball, swimming in a lake, having a campfire, all these things that felt so far removed from what I was now knowing as my childhood, it, it was really incredible to experience those things and to um, experience them, even if you didn't talk about it, knowing they'd been through the same things. I, I love the idea of cancer patients, you know, young or old, finding people that have been in a similar situation. I think it's incredibly hard as an adolescent to feel like you are the only one that has gone through something it's hard to feel like you have the tools to process that, you know? So um, somewhere like camp was a game changer for me. <laughs> no, absolutely. It can be a really lonely and isolating experience, yeah. even in survivorship, like you mentioned, to feel like I have these potentially great friends and we have lots of shared interests, mm -hmm. but there's this huge part of my life, this enormously difficult thing that I went through 
and they really don't understand what that was like. Um, we see that probably more than ever with the pandemic because so much of what they do here is separate from sort of the outside world. You know, siblings and friends and people that used to be able to come into the hospital, they, they really don't get to witness any of their treatment journey. Uh, and, and for our patients, that often is, feels really lonely and isolating. And even then in survivorship, they really don't feel like they can connect with those friends about their cancer journey. So they may have the same interests and things that they can, you know, stay kind of connected to their previous social circle. But whether it's through camp or other resources, finding somebody that they can talk to that can understand what it's like to get a non-sedated lumbar puncture. You know, those are very kind of specific things to go through. And just that sense of I'm not alone. There's yeah. other people out there, like you said, that have a range of experiences and maybe they had even a different diagnosis or were treated at a different hospital, but they sort of speak that same language and they just mm -hmm. have that extra understanding of what it actually was like. And that can make such a huge difference, even if it's not all the time or if it's just somebody that they connect with once in a while, that really does seem to help. And you said something really great. It doesn't mean that like the friends you had prior to your diagnosis have to, you know, go away. You know, for me, I had an incredible group of friends. They just didn't understand a part of my life. What sort of strategies would you recommend utilizing to promote um, positive coping or resilience for a child um, or parent? And then do you handle that differently um, based on ages? Yeah, it definitely varies by age and just sort of personality type in each unique child and family. You know, one of the things I love about working in this area is that every family is different. Every kid is different. So even if the diagnosis is the same, the way that they're going to cope best with their journey is a really individual thing. Uh, and so one of the kind of coping skills I talk about is identifying strengths. What is it that the child is best at? You know, what do they like to do? What are their hobbies and interests? Because maybe if they are really artistic, then using art or using that type of medium to cope with how they're feeling will be a really helpful thing. Part of the initial process is just looking at who are you and what are the things that are important to you as your, you know, as a child or as a family, and how can we make sure those things can be there during treatment? Obviously, cancer is, is life-changing in many ways, and it has a lot of impact on you know, time and financial resources, but how can we find those things that are really important to you and still try to make sure that they happen? For younger children, you mentioned sort of the differences in age. I talk to parents a lot about still setting expectations. You know, there should still be consequences if they whap their sister across the face. If they uh, have schoolwork to do, we should still expect them to do schoolwork. And really that maintaining some sense of routine and structure is really helpful. It's a great reminder that the world hasn't changed entirely. We're not putting everything on pause. We're going to still expect these same things from you sort of in moderation. Um, and that is actually a really important signal to kids. Another thing I talk about a lot to parents for younger kids is it's okay to show your emotions. That by crying or noting that you're feeling frustrated or angry or missing out on things as a parent, it normalizes to the child that they can show those emotions too. And again, that those are expected and normal to go through as you're dealing with treatment. With our adolescent and young adult population, I really like to talk about what are those things that aren't being met? What are those needs that you are identifying during treatment, those things you're missing out on, whether it's school or sports or theater or something, whatever it is that was important to you, and how can we find 
ways to sort of access or meet some of those needs if we can during treatment. And that includes independence. One of the most difficult things for our teens and, and young adult patients is there's a really normative process in that age range of gaining separation from your parents and families and doing more on your own and feeling more autonomous. And that can really disappear during treatment. Suddenly your parents are around all the time, especially in the hospital room, and you just are more dependent on other people. You may need help with some of the things that you were previously able to do on your own. And so we work with our teens and our families a lot uh, kind of around that topic is how do we still allow you to have some independence and sense of control over your own life? Because it can really feel like a lot of that has been taken away. Uh, and, and the other thing that I'll talk to both parents, but also really teens and patients about is the idea of mindfulness. You know, I think parents anecdotally say this a lot. They'll talk about taking things one day at a time. And that cliche really does ring true. It's really at the heart of what we call mindfulness-based stress reduction or a mindful approach to coping. And the idea there is that there are these difficult emotions and we might not necessarily be able to make them go away. Um, so mindfulness is really about acknowledging that emotion and rather than sort of swimming against the current and spending your time and energy trying to change that feeling, sort of understanding that it's there and then moving forward with what am I going to do to help myself get through this day or to help my child get through this day? Understanding that just because you are feeling distress, it doesn't mean you're coping poorly. It doesn't mean that everything is going to always feel that way, uh, but rather that today is a difficult day and I'm feeling really upset. So given that that's how I'm feeling, here's what I'm going to choose to do. Here's what I'm going to find as a way of helping myself either feel better or just sort of getting through this difficult day and hoping that tomorrow is a better one. Um, I think sometimes during cancer, you can feel really extreme highs and really low lows. It's like you're having surgery or chemo today, but tomorrow we're going to Disney World. <laughs> it, that's really interesting. You spoke to a lot of things that kind of hit on that of what I talked to, to Robbie about of. Sometimes it's okay to have a, a normal day. It's okay to set boundaries. Um, I think my sister would love that a lot. Her favorite <laughs> thing looking back at, she's 12 years older than me. So she remembers me being sick very vividly. And mm -hmm. she looks back at me being sick as a teenager. And she's like, if our father just would have told you, no, you would have been 10 times better in life. Like if you just would have had one boundary told no once, like you got your way at all times and it did not help you at all. <laughs> And then now it's true. You can look back at that. Sure. Like, yeah, absolutely. It was not helpful. I needed to learn how to do my homework. I needed to like have some sense of responsibility. Um, and you and you said that it would have helped me a lot to have those boundaries, to have that stability and rules. Yeah. So I love the input we get from siblings because they yeah. have their own part of this journey for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we understand that siblings often feel like they're sort of set aside during the treatment process. Uh, they can offer sometimes fantastic insight into how their parents and the patient are interacting or what things are going on at home, uh, often a lot of brutal honesty, which can be helpful at times. <laughs> and we really appreciate that perspective. And we on occasion provide sibling support as well. So uh, our child life specialists uh, tend to primarily work with siblings as kids go through treatment. Uh, but psychology certainly can be part of that process too, depending on the concerns that the child is having. Because we do recognize that, that it is something that really affects the whole family. It really does. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's it's great to hear that. Um, you know, someone it seems like in all the departments of your hospital have the whole family covered, which is really great.
so we're, we're touching on a lot of the resources within your hospital. Can you speak a little bit of um, resources that might be outside of the hospital? No, it's a great question because I think sometimes just finding that outside support is, is really important. Um, I, you, you didn't set me up for this one, but camp is certainly one of those. Um, and not just for camp itself and the great experiences that our patients have had there. But I think the thing that stands out to me about our, our people that are able to go to camp and experience camp is the relationships that they build that last beyond camp. Those really are so impactful because like we talked about, they, they just sometimes are able to connect on a very different and unique level. Uh, so that can be a really helpful part of that journey for, for people. Uh, we also have a couple of programs uh, through what we call AYA program or Adolescent and Young Adult Program here at Children's Wisconsin that helps connect uh, patients that have gone through treatment or are going through treatment sort of in that really vulnerable, unique time in adolescence or young adulthood. And then as far as outside resources, one of the difficult things is there is so much information out there, right? And so if you search on the internet, you're going to see a lot and there's going to be a lot of helpful things. There's going to be a lot of very not helpful things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we encourage families to do is look for some of those reputable organizations and places that really have sort of a direct line to kind of um, well-validated, well-resourced support. Uh, Immerman Angels is a great organization that can help connect patients or parents to another sort of peer mentor or support person. Uh, There's some sort of disease-specific groups like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation, the Sarcoma Alliance, um, sort of a range of those that provide that specific programming and support for different types of cancer diagnoses. And those can be a really helpful way to find other programs, to find kind of support networks and some of that, that again, we know is more likely to be helpful than just some of the other random stuff that's available out there. That's great. Um, If you were going to leave a family with, um, you know, your number one piece of advice, you know, what would it be knowing that like, hopefully something can rise above and, and stick with them, you know? I think if there was one thing that, that I would highlight, it's that there is no one way. And our patients and families share that they get a lot of advice sometimes from people about how to do things, how to hold your fundraiser, how to cope, you know, how to support your child. And it's often well-meaning advice from friends and neighbors and grandparents. But the fact that something worked for one family or is you know, in a book somewhere doesn't mean that that will work for you. So I think that the the piece of advice I would give is that you know your child and family best. You are the expert on your own child, on your own family. So we're here to support you by looking at what is it about your child that's special and unique? And what is it about your family that are really your strengths that you can capitalize on? Mm, that's incredible. Um, such good advice for all the families out there. And thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely incredible. Absolutely. Happy to help. Thank you. Dr. Karst, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, everything you shared is going to help so many families facing childhood cancer. We're so grateful for your time and for all the resources that you shared for everyone listening. Thank you.